Well, for those of you who have not met or have not met me, I'm Pastor Norb. I'm the associate pastor here at uh, TCC. And our senior pastor, Ken McDonald, is on a, on a few more weeks of his, that are remaining of his sabbatical. He will return in early February. And so in his absence, we have a number of voices that have filled this pulpit, uh, from myself and last week, Kyer Hammer, and this morning, Corey Anderson will speak to us from John chapter 14. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to John chapter 14. John chapter 13, really, is a turning point, as, as uh, we have been saying. Um, actually, chapter 12 already is the turning point where it goes from kind of a public ministry to a more private ministry with Jesus and his disciples. And, uh, and chapter 14 really starts a conversation that now takes place for about the next three chapters, chapter 14, 15, and 16. And so Corey is not only going to start chapter 14 this week, but he'll also speak next week on chapter 15 as it kind of continues um, the theme as well. We're not going to take the time to read all of it because Corey will be referring to much of it in his message this morning. But Corey and his wife Beth and their four children have been uh, attending TCC for probably four or five years now. And uh, Corey is a former pastor who uh, served churches in uh, Barhead and Rimby and uh, now serves and works with families in conflict. And uh, he's going to come as a friend, as one of our family, as one of the leaders in our church. And this year we'll be actually chairing our elder team. So we're excited about that. Corey, why don't you come? And uh, bring God's word to us this morning. John chapter 14. Thank you, Pastor Norb. Um, And I I also want to echo my happy birthday to you as well. Um, For those of you who know me, well, not everybody who knows me knows this, but for a lot of you, you'll know that one of my favorite books of all time is John Bunyan's classic work, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And in this story, it's, a, it's an allegory of a character named Christian who is traveling along with a man named Hopeful. And as they're journeying, uh, Christian and Hopeful approach a river as they're, they're getting towards their, their final destination. And I'm not entirely sure what they're thinking as they approach this, this river, but they come across it and they stop, and the first thing that they say is, there has to be a way around the river. Now, I am not an expert in water management by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm pretty confident it's not that easy to just walk around a river, is it? So what they do is they they discover they can't get around it, and they start looking for a way over the river. But there's no bridge. There's no boat. There is no way for them to get around the river. And so... As they're walking, as they, they, they realize they're going to have to go through this river. And so these two men, neither of them want to get in, but they slowly approach the bank of the river and they dip their toe in. It's cold. The water's moving fast. Neither wants to move forward. However, they begin to cross this river. And... Um, And all of a sudden, Christian is swept off of his feet by the current, and he's dragged under the water, and he can't seem to get his feet back on the ground. His head bobs below, and it pops back up again, and he's unable to see anything around him, just water. And in this moment, he loses his perspective, and he begins to cry out in fear. 
And it's really quite melodramatic when he says, Oh, my dear friend, go on without me. That's a terrible accent, I'm sorry. But he says, Go on without me. Enjoy the celestial city because the waves of death are washing over me and darkness is surrounding me. And Christian loudly proclaims in his loudest voice possible, If only I were a better person, I'd be safe now. He's, he's flailing his arms in the air. He's trying to keep afloat. He's screaming out in terror. And at the end of the day, all he's doing is making things worse. And so along comes Hopeful, his friend, who grabs him by the scruff of the neck. And he pulls him to his feet. And he says, Christian, put your feet down. Christian looks ahead. He looks down. And he realizes the river is actually only chest deep. He can stand in this water just fine. They've come to a point where they're no longer uh, in, in such a heavy current. He's safe. Everything is going to be okay. And with a loud voice, Christian quotes Isaiah chapter 43 verse 2 when he says, when you pass through the river, I think we're a slide behind here, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. In other words, when life begins spiraling out of control and you feel that you've been abandoned or left alone to drown in the cold and icy water, when you feel that there's no one left to care for you, you are not alone. You know, I'm actually fairly confident that every one of us in this room at some point or another has been in a position like this character named Christian, where we feel that life is suddenly overwhelming and it feels like we've lost control of everything in our world and what was safe and secure has been torn from our grasp and it's now gone. You know, if you've never felt that safety and security has ever been taken from you, I can guarantee you one thing. That day is coming. You know, over the past several months, we have been looking at a, we've been journeying through the Gospel of John in a series that has been called Taking Jesus Seriously. And I want to understand this morning as we approach John chapter 14, that if ever there was a moment when we really need to take Jesus seriously, it's now. It's here. It's here in John 13, verse 18, all the way through to the end of John 16. And towards the end of John 13, you see it towards the end of John 13, Jesus actually begins a conversation with his disciples. And he appears to be nervous, and he appears to be just a little bit scared. At this point, he has sent Judas away, and nobody really fully understands why he's done it. He's rebuked Peter in front of the whole room. And again, why? He's going to deny him three times? See, this is the night when everything changes. Jesus understands that in the next 24 hours, Judas is going to turn him over to the soldiers. Peter is going to deny knowing him. 
He's going to spend time with both Herod and Pilate. He will be beaten. A crown of thorns will be pushed into his skull. And his clothes will be torn apart and they'll be gambled for by the guards. His hands will be tied to the cross. And eventually nails are going to be driven into his wrists and into his ankles. He knows that in the hours that are to come, his disciples will watch as the cross is raised into place. And they will witness him gasp for every breath. He knows that his disciples and his followers will survive a massive earthquake and they will see the temple curtain torn in two from top to bottom. Is Jesus anxious? Is he a little bit nervous? Yeah, but I think he's got the right to be. The world is about to be turned upside down and inside out and everything that was once safe and comfortable is about to become chaos. And it won't be long before the disciples themselves are going to face intense persecution and suffering of their own. Everyone in that room is more than a little bit scared. And the disciples are starting to ask some pretty tough questions. Questions like, okay, if you're leaving, why can't we come with you? Where are you going that's so important that we can't follow? Oh, Peter, Thomas, if you only knew where he was going and what was coming, you wouldn't ask the question. In John 16, as Jesus wraps up his sermon, he says to his disciples, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they've never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now, so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. In other words, the current is about to sweep you off your feet and you will be dragged into the river. John chapter 14 to 16 is about as serious as it gets. Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples are ready for what is about to hit them. These are his final words to his disciples before he's ultimately arrested and crucified. John 14. He begins his message with the words, No matter how you feel, you are not alone. When the river is rushing over top of you and you feel the world is collapsing around you, put your feet on the ground because the ground underneath you is safer than you might just think. And so he begins his comments with, to his disciples by saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God but trust also in me. And it's at this point that Philip interrupts him. And let's for a minute here just call him Philip the interrupter because he's interrupting. And he says, okay, Jesus, we can't come with you. I, I get that now. That, that makes sense. We can't come with you. But before you go, can you please just show us what the pathway is to God so that when we stand in the temple and we preach your name, 
we're going to have some piece of evidence, something that we can show the world that will validate your claim. Just give us something. Now, that's significant because in the first century, no self-respecting Jew would ever make the assumption that they would ever see God. Philip knows that if they have some type of sign, something that they can bring to the world and show the world that, yes, his claims are true, they're going to have some credibility and, and ultimately safety. He's scared. He's trying to protect himself. And so Jesus answers Philip by saying, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Essentially, Philip, if you want the the pathway to God, you are looking in all the wrong places. Don't look in the burning bush. Don't look in the belly of the whale. If you want to look at God, if you want to see the Father, Jesus says, look at me. He then told him, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through, through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John. And next week, we're going to take a look at the seventh when he says, I am the true vine. But this morning, I want us to take a few minutes, and I want us to just pull these words apart because it teaches us how Jesus plans to support us as our lives are ripped apart. And I want us to look at these three statements individually. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, first of all, he says, I am the truth, what he's te- or the, the, the way he's saying, it is by his death and ultimate resurrection that I, Corey, will have the ability to enter into the presence of the Father. Jesus tells us, I am going to die in order to pay the ultimate penalty for your sins. And because I have defeated death once and for all, you will have the ability to enter into God's presence. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 23, we read, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting in him. I want to pretend. This didn't really happen, so don't, don't look at this as a promise. But I want to pretend just for a moment that I won an all-expense-paid trip for 600 of my closest friends and myself to go deep-sea diving in the Great Barrier Reef. Didn't happen. Don't don't hold your breath. So my 600 closest friends and I are going to get the opportunity to explore some of the most uh, beautiful underwater destinations that have ever been known to the human race. 
And so this one-month trip will give us, so I'm taking you, my 600 closest friends, with, with me, right? And it'll give us a chance to bond together as friends. It'll give us the chance to explore some of the most incredible parts to the world. Now, let's pretend again that the people who I win this trip through agree that they're going to pay for scuba lessons before we go. They're going to pay for a luxury ocean liner, air tanks, shark cages, spear guns, flashlights. And all we need to do is pick a date for when we're going to do this one-month trip, as well as pick the date for when we're going to take our free scuba lesson. So we pick a date for our free scuba lesson, and we rent the Terwilliger Rec Center before we go. Now, our day at the rec center turns out to be a lot of fun. It's actually quite magical. And um, as we learn to scuba dive, we also learn how to shoot with our spear guns. That was the best. And uh, at the end of the day, um, Bob Teske makes us a beautiful dinner. That's, That's Bob. And as we're having dinner, Bob Teske actually speaks up. And he says, you know what? That was the absolute best day of my life. I would absolutely love to do that again. And so Pastor Norb pipes up and he says, you know what, I'll bet we can. All we have to do is ask the people who are paying for this trip if we can trade in our airline tickets, our shark tanks, our luxury boat, our hotel rooms, and everything else. And I'm sure they will agree to pay for another day of scuba lessons at the Terwilliger Rec Center. So we're talking, and we agree that we're going to take a vote on the issue. So let's actually vote. If you would trade the chance to spend a month in some of the most incredible places in the world, as we explore some of the most amazing scenery in the world, in order to go swimming at the Terwilliger Rec Center, Raise your hand. Oh, come on. There's got to be at least one, right? (laughs) You know what? Swimming at the Terwilliger Rec Center can actually be a lot of fun, can't it? But if I had to make the choice, if I had to choose between swimming in the Great Barrier Reef and swimming at the Terwilliger Rec Center, it's really not much of a decision, is it? But the unfortunate truth is, many of us make this exact same decision every single day as we fail to explore the depths of God's partnership with our lives. See, prayer is the basis for the partnership that we have with a God who is active and who wants to participate in my life. Without prayer, it's like we've turned down the most extremely generous gift, which would allow us to explore the depths of creation in order to swim in a bathtub. We just wouldn't do it. Here in John chapter 14, Jesus says to his followers, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. 
Jesus tells us here in John 14, 12 to 13, he says that whenever the world is crushing in on us, we have the ability to come before the Father and ask in the name of Jesus, and God will respond. No, he's not always going to do exactly what I think he should do. In fact, he rarely does what I think he should do. But through our lives, Jesus will indeed bring glory to his Father. In Psalm 46, we read, God is our refuge and strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. In this psalm, 46, David tells us about the chaos of his life, and he's telling us about the urgency of the moment to start finding answers to his own crisis. And in this psalm, the world is literally coming in and falling down around him. And David writes these words, Come and see the works of the Lord. Come and see the desolation that he has brought on the earth. God completely understands why the world is crumbling around him. And here David even goes so far as to say, my crisis, what I'm going through right now, that's God's work. And what feels like chaos to me is really God bringing order into my world. David understands that God already knows that the mountain is crumbling into the sea. And he already knows that the ocean waters are foaming and surging and overwhelming lives. Why? Because God is in charge of this destructive moment. I don't need to tell God that the mountain is crumbling. Why? Because he is the engineer who designed it. He doesn't need to ask God to stop the mountain from breaking apart. Why? Because it was God who made the mountain fall apart in the first place. And so what does David say in this moment? What is his, his advice to us while the world is falling around him? David says, Be still and know that I am God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words... God already knows what's going on in my life. And he's already got the solution figured out. He hasn't left me. He hasn't abandoned me. And so if God knows the answers to my questions, or even if he already knows the questions that I should be asking him, why pray? Well, C.S. Lewis pointed out that this same argument could be made about just about everything in life when he asked, why wash your hands? If God intended them to be clean, they'll become clean without your washing them. Why ask for the salt? Why put on boots? Why do anything? 
Do you know, God could have indeed arranged the world so that my body would regenerate itself through activity rather than sleep. He could have made it so that I didn't need to find nourishment with food. God created prayer to drive my relationship with him. He knows what I'm going to ask for. He knows the answer. He knows how I'm going to respond. So why pray? Well, it's not about my teaching God something that he didn't already know. God already knew it. It's about me learning something about God. God wants me to pray so that I can better get to know him. He wants me to spend time with him. He wants me to discover his priorities. And he wants me to understand what makes him excited and what makes him passionate. Quite simply, why pray? He wants me to spend time with him. Prayer is about increasing my knowledge of God. Prayer is about my learning about who God is and why he does what he does. And you know what? Jesus opens the door at the cross for me to have free and flowing communication with the Father. It's not a dictatorship. It's not somebody who's saying, well, I already know the answer anyway, so why bother spending time with me? It's about an opportunity to understand and to get to know the Father. Prayer allows me to enter into a partnership with God. God doesn't need the wisdom and the knowledge that I so often foolishly give him as I spout it out in prayer. He already knows about our sick Aunt Susie who needs his healing touch. However, he does want us to tell him how much we love our sick Aunt Susie and how we genuinely hurt for her because she's suffering. We work through issues together. I share with God the longing of my heart to be understood, but I'm also working to understand God. It's a partnership. And so when I come to the cross, I am not the same as Kevin Lowe's second-tier fans who only kind of sort of actually get heard with their concerns. When my life is flipped upside down, I have the ability to come and find the comfort of a God who loved me enough to die. Now that doesn't mean that God is going to ignore my sin and shame. It, doesn't mean, it does, however, mean that he will accept me regardless of what I've done. The cross, it gives me the ability to come and stand before God and share my deepest insecurities and share my deepest sin. It gives me the ability to speak openly and freely with him. And I can share with him the mess that I've made of my life. And he's likely to respond, you know what? I know all about your mess. I've watched it grow. I've watched it get worse. I see the mess you've made. And I love you anyways. The honesty that we're now able to have with the Father opens up the door to a dialogue about our sin without fear that God is just going to bang me on the head like some giant whack-a-mole. When Jesus says, I am the truth, he assures us that God has every intention of dealing with our sin and shame. In verse 16, Jesus says that he will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate 
who will never leave you. Now, that word advocate has been translated in a lot of different versions of the Bible in a lot of different ways. I've read it as helper. I've read it as comforter, uh, protector, and even counselor. Now, the New Jerusalem translation of the Bible takes the easy road in that they they, they leave the Greek word paraclete untranslated. In other words, they just leave it in the Greek. Now, I actually like the way that the New Jerusalem Bible deals with it because um, anytime we try to define the word paraclete with just one or two English words, we find ourselves a little bit misled. Now, coming from the, the background that I come from, I've always read this passage where it describes the Holy Spirit as a counselor and, and thought of him more as a therapist. Unfortunately, this brings the image of an old man in a cardigan providing us with unconditional positive regard while asking us deep, meaningful questions about our toilet training or how badly our mom screwed us up when we were children, doesn't it? But when translating from the Greek, it's actually probably closer when talking the counselor to the word lawyer than it is therapist. Unfortunately, if I were to describe the Holy Spirit as a lawyer, oh my goodness, what would we think of him at that point, right? We'd probably see him as something that's a little bit crooked and corrupt, and so the translator sometimes used that word counselor, which is why this particular translation that I've got on the screen uses the word advocate, But the idea of a lawyer isn't quite right either because the lawyer brings about the image of someone who's solely responsible to defend some type of position, either mine or somebody else's. Now that word paraclete could likely mean someone who is called upon to help. In the Greco-Roman world, the paraclete was typically a lawyer And he typically did represent both the accuser and the accused. The paraclete worked to try and see both sides of an issue. And he worked to find both mercy and justice for the accuser and the victim. I like this. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is a mediator who's not there to take sides. He's there to ask a lot of questions, and he's there to expose the truth. The paraclete was responsible to figure out what went wrong and how to ensure that the problem didn't repeat itself again down the road. As such, his job is to expose and draw my sin and my shame to the surface. Why? Well, it's certainly not to hurt me, but to deal with it. See, as long as my sin and as long as my shame is buried deep within the dark recesses of my life, I can very easily deny it exists. And then I miss out on the fullness of life that comes from living in right relationship. Thus, the Christian life is about God living in you and you living in Christ. It's about a partnership between Christ and me through the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. People should be able to listen to somebody talking about who I am and ask the question, are you certain you're talking about the same Corey Anderson that I know? Because that's not at all how I see him today. 
over the course of my life, people should be able to, to realize and recognize the changes that God is bringing out in me. And so in verse 17, Jesus tells us, you know him because he lives with you now and later he will be in you. Jesus doesn't say, I am with you. Rather, he says, I am in you. The Holy Spirit becomes so close to us that he becomes our center of gravity, the force that keeps our lives centered on Christ. And it's through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ lives in me. In North America, we have defined peace as the absence of conflict. As such, when we're in the middle of something, we often sweep the conflict under the rug or under the table and and hide from it, hoping that it will go away. However, I have learned that when ignored, conflict doesn't go away, it just deepens. And I have come to the conclusion that peace is not the absence of conflict, but the simultaneous presence of justice and mercy. Peace is found when we have the ability to be vulnerable and understand that what we share won't be used against us. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that he'll bring the accuser and the accused together to listen for and to find out the truth and will allow the victim to express to the offender how their sin has impacted and shaped their lives. He will allow the offender to see how their actions have affected the offended. The Holy Spirit brings about truth and justice. But at the cross, Jesus brings mercy and forgiveness as we set the past behind us and as we begin looking and marching towards the future. In the book of Micah, there's some conversation about coming peace and the coming of peace. And in the book of Micah, the people eventually rally and say, how is it that we are going to find this peace that you promise? And the prophet Micah says, The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you. To do what is right, I've also read it in many places, is to do justice. To love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Shalom, or peace, is found not when I'm hiding from conflict, but when it's faced with mutual understanding. Do you know, I frequently have spouses come into my office and they'll be talking about their other spouse and they'll say, you know, if they really loved me, they wouldn't judge me. I often probe a little bit deeper and discover that sometimes it truly means if a person really loved me, they would ignore all the bad things that I've done. According to the cross, there can be no love without judgment. And there can be no mercy without justice. 
Jesus tells us that he brings about peace in my life when I am vulnerable with the Father. Peace in my life is found when I allow the Holy Spirit to speak truth and to challenge me to grow. Peace is found when I follow through and I make changes. I want you to understand this morning that this requires a partnership between myself and God. It requires us working together. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. To be a Christ follower is to have a relationship with his Father. Jesus opened that door. To be a Christ follower is to experience transformation of life. And so Jesus sent us his Holy Spirit. To be a Christ follower is to experience a genuine peace that comes from dealing with difficult and painful realities. And so as my life is twisted and turned upside down, I have an assurance that I am not alone. I have a promise of a peace that comes only through justice and the forgiveness of a God who loved me. In John chapter 14, verses 18 to 19, Jesus says, No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. The world will no longer see him. Why? Because he's about to die. He's about to be crucified. But that doesn't mean that he's gone. He says, I live in you. Jesus reminds his disciples that over the next few hours, their lives are about to be flipped upside down and turned around. Everything that they knew is safe and secure is going to be pulled from them. Yet they're not alone. Over the next several years, they're going to be hunted, imprisoned, beaten, falsely accused, shipwrecked on empty islands, and even crucified. And Jesus' message to those followers at that moment was the exact same as David's in the psalm when he says, Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Why? Because I know what you will face. I know what you're about to go through. And so you can put your feet down. The river is not as deep or as fast as you might believe. Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that when my life is flipped upside down and turned around, I know that I haven't been left alone. Father, I know that when the world is crumbling around me and when life seems to be falling apart, you haven't abandoned me. You haven't looked at me and said, oh, whatever. 
But when my life is in turmoil, you come to me and you say to me, I am the way. You want to know the Father? You want to, you want to experience a partnership? Look to me. I know that you look and you say, if you want to understand the truth, if you want to understand the depths of what's going on, turn, look at me, because I am the way and I am the truth. And when we embrace these, you say, this is where you will find life. You will find peace. Father, I thank you for, your, for, for sending Jesus to come and to die on the cross for my sin so that I can experience the fullness of life. We just ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.